Good morning, Redeemer. We are finishing up an Advent series where we've seen from Genesis and Exodus that every story of Scripture whispers the name of Jesus. So we're going to continue that today with actually the first chapter of the New Testament and see that all of the Old Testament doesn't just whisper but proclaims the name of Jesus loudly. But we know that Advent is technically over. Bill mentioned it earlier. And we now find ourselves in this bizarre time warp between Christmas and New Year's. It's a little disorienting. We don't really know what day it is. We're coming off of celebrations, and then we're looking forward to anticipations and expectations for a new year. If we're honest with ourselves, what we've just experienced is not always merry and bright. Perhaps there were things that were said around the Christmas dinner table that would have been best left unsaid, that were hurtful. Perhaps there were things left unsaid that you've longed to hear your entire life. Things like, I'm sorry, I forgive you, I love you. Perhaps this season is hard for you because of who wasn't there with you. And whether you have a nuclear family, your own family or not, we all come from a family. We all have a family of origin. And the good, the bad, and the ugly of those families tend to come out around Christmas time and the holidays. And whether we are aware of it or not, we're all in some way being refamilied, right? With a new family or a new community. And the alternative is that we would just continue in or out of the old patterns of the past, the old family patterns. And so as we finish Advent, the season of looking and longing and waiting for a Savior, my hope is that we would gain perspective by looking at the family history of Jesus. Jesus' family origin. Jesus' family tree. And that we would be grafted into that tree by grace. That we would be refamilied by one another, the family of God. And that this redeemed house would truly become home. That we would be grafted by grace into Jesus' family tree. With this in mind, please open up with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, where we find Jesus' genealogy. And what we see in Jesus' genealogy is that the Christmas story is one of God redeeming a family by sending one child into it. Redeeming an entire history, an entire family by sending one child, seemingly far too late, and seemingly after all kinds of damage had been done within the family. Matthew, as an author, his overarching purpose is to evangelize Israel. He's, he's over and over showing Israel this message, Jesus, Jesus is who you've been waiting for. The shoot of Jesse, the branch, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David. And as such, with that being his purpose, he assumes that his readers know a lot about the Old Testament. So as, as Brian and Elbert have preached through Mark, it kind of reads like bullet points. Matthew reads more like a study Bible, the ISV, Israelite Standard Version Study Bibles. This thick, he's constantly pointing back to things. That's his overarching purpose. And the first thing he starts with to evangelize Israel, to show them that Christ is who they've been waiting for, is names, the family history. And unfortunately, what we see is that this family is a hot mess. Like Elbert mentioned last week, sometimes it reads a lot like a soap opera. 
this family history, this genealogy, shows us not only that a Savior was near, it shows us that a Savior was necessary. A Savior was desperately necessary. So before we read this text, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts by your word, by your spirit. I thank you for those who are here worshiping with us, those who know you and those who don't. And I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in everything that is said and everything that we take home from your word right now, Lord. So illuminate it. Help us understand it, even as we look at it together. And it's in your precious name that I pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, that was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. And Abiad, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of, to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. When I was about four years old, we moved from Baker, Louisiana to Zachary, Louisiana. And I remember being so excited about the new house. There were two freshly planted trees in the front yard and in the side yard. So there was a magnolia in the front and there was a fig on the side. And the reason I was so excited because there were two family trees that I had in my mind when I saw these new freshly planted trees. My maternal grandmother had giant magnolias that we spent all of our time climbing. And then my paternal grandmother had a fig tree that we spent all of our time climbing. But my four-year-old mind couldn't understand that these trees were a long way from being ready to climb. In fact, by the time I went to college, they still couldn't hold my weight. It seemed like my hope and expectations were continually, indefinitely deferred. Waiting and waiting on these trees. This is the story of Abraham's family tree, isn't it? Waiting upon waiting upon waiting, hoping upon hoping upon hoping. 
Where is this true king that would come? God, you said that you would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's family. God, you promised that the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent. But now we see Babylon, which gets a lot of play in this genealogy, focusing on this trauma that happened within the family. When Babylon came and deported Israel, it seemed like the opposite. The seed of the woman wasn't crushing the serpent. The seed of the serpent was crushing the seed of the woman. God, what are you doing here? But late in time, behold, he came. Offspring of a virgin's womb, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. But what does this mean for us today? In the wake of cream cheese and carols, time with family and sometimes even harder time with ourselves? Matthew 1 shows us there are just two things that I'd like for us to focus on in this text. Matthew chapter 1 shows us that Jesus enters the pain of this family. And secondly, that Jesus keeps his promises to this family. Jesus enters the pain of this family, and Jesus keeps his promises to this family. And as we see Jesus enter the pain and keep the promises, I can assure you that he can and will graft you and yours into this new family by his grace. So let's look at the text. First, we see that Jesus enters the pain of this family. And we actually see this in verses 2 through 17. One way that we can understand this text is as a pain sandwich. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hmm, happy New Year's to you too, Zach. That sounds very jolly for a Christmas New Year's sermon. But hang with me for a second. Verses 2 through 17 show us the painful family history. Verses 1 and 18 show us the promises given and the promises kept. So it's a pain and promise sandwich. So first thing, why a genealogy? Why would Matthew start with a genealogy and go through Abraham's family history? A genealogy roots us in history. Matthew was using a familiar genre of Greco-Roman historiography for public figures, where you start with origins. In fact, that's the word that's used here, the book of genealogies, the book of origins, the genesis of Jesus where it would start with origins and genealogy, it would largely skip over childhood, and then it would go into public appearance and public action. And that's largely told thematically and not necessarily chronologically. And so he's using this familiar genre and rooting us in history. And friends, when we see this over and over in Scripture, Genesis is structured around genealogies, much of the Old Testament. And here the Gospels are structured around genealogies. It's rooting us in history. That Christianity is not a mythical religion. It is the movement, the action, the very word of God in time and in space. People in history. If we, like our culture does, pull these names, including Jesus, out of history and understand these things as myths or inspirations or examples, we divorce Jesus, from his human, gritty, biological connection to us and to our pain. Friends, it is Jesus' flesh and blood bond with your humanity that is our means for resurrection. Do you hear me, friends? It is this history, Jesus entering fully God and fully man into a family, that is our hope for resurrection. So this genealogy roots us in history. 
Because Scripture, over and over again, looks sin and pain and history square in the eyes and tells the truth, doesn't it? It's a good time for us to remember that just because Scripture includes something does not mean that it condones it, right? But it does include it. It tells the truth about everything that has happened. And what that shows us is how badly we need a Savior. How badly we need a Savior. And it is right here, friends. This is where Jesus places himself. Right in the middle of this dumpster fire is where Jesus goes to rescue us. So look with me at verse 17. Verse 17 actually helps us understand the way that Matthew's structuring this entire genealogy. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So he focuses on multiples of seven, three groups of 14. This is likely a memorable teaching tool that Matthew's using so that the people who are reading it can remember these names and the way it's going. Rather than being comprehensive, he picks representative generations. We know from studying the history that there are gaps between, likely gaps between Ruth and David. There are likely gaps between Joram and Uzziah. This doesn't do anything to question the historicity of this list. It just reflects the fact that son of can be grandson, great-grandson, Genealogies can be structured around kingly line. They can be strictly biological or they can include adoptive, right? Just like our genealogies, the way you look at them, we'll see how you trace it back. So, but the whole point of this 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations is to show that Jesus equals completion. That the advent of Jesus, the birth of Jesus means completion for the universe. What do I mean? Hang with me for a second because I know you didn't come to church to do math. But 14 times 3 is the same as 7 times 6. And we know from Scripture that 7 is the number of completion in Scripture. The Sabbath day is where we rest and worship God. Israel had a Sabbath year where every seventh year they would give rest to the land. They also had a Jubilee year, 7 times 7, 49, where all the land would go back to its original families. Indentured servants would be set free, right? Hope and restoration was happening to the land. And so seven comes up. We see it in Revelation. This number of completion, the fullness of time is here. So the point of this genealogy, by pointing out these 14 generations, these multiples of seven, is that all of history, from Abraham to Joseph, represents six of the sevens. And that the birth of Jesus is the beginning of the seventh seven. Are you with me? It's almost like Matthew is saying we've only got one more week to go. It's close. When Jesus finishes what he starts, all will be made right. All that is sad will come untrue. The advent of true rest, the king who brings true jubilee. God's plan from Alpha to Omega is on its last letter with the birth of Jesus. Here, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Israel is almost out of exile. We've only got one more week to go. So now that we've seen the framework and the direction of this genealogy, let's look at the names themselves. And this is where we see the painful family history. i never forget another pastor um, saying this. Uh, only one person in all of human history was able to handpick their family of origin. And it's more than a little shocking <laughs> 
that Jesus would choose this one. Only one person handpicked their family, and this is who Jesus chose. This family is full of glory and honor given by God, but it also bears the marks of sin and pain and shame. Just consider for a moment a few of the patriarchs. Listen for the pain and the sin that's present in this family. Abraham, infertility. Jacob, a notorious liar who also longed and waited for a spouse. Judah, solicited prostitution. David, adultery and murder. Manasseh, one of the most notorious of all the kings for his idolatry and his worship of Baal. Jeconia, the last son of David to sit on the throne, carted off to Babylon, representative of failure. Friends, Matthew leaves a few names off of this list, but isn't it interesting he doesn't leave these off? These are included. We feel the weight of this pain as we read this list because we've experienced these things or we've seen these things hurt those we love the most, haven't we? As many have said in all kinds of different ways, the people that Jesus comes from are the people that Jesus came for. The family that Jesus comes from reflects the family he came for me, and you. Next, let's, let's consider the matriarchs of Jesus, the four grandmothers of Jesus that we see in this list, which was not common to include mothers, matriarchs, in this genealogy. And yet, they're named. They're shown honor. We hear their names. What's remarkable about these, all four of these women, Tamar, Ruth, Rahab and Bathsheba, and notice Bathsheba's name is not mentioned. She's called the wife of Uriah, seemingly to highlight the horror of the situation. They are named, and they were all Gentiles, not sons and daughters of Abraham. Also, in each of their cases, they, they have heartbreaking stories. How and why they were ever even included in this list is not a pretty picture these women were powerless, they were marginalized, and they were associated with scandal, either personally or simply being sinned against by someone else, and yet they find themselves here. And yet, these scandalous grandmothers prepare the way for the ultimate scandal. Mary, a virgin, engaged one moment on the verge of public shame the next. Those who would call themselves unbelievers believe in the virgin birth of the universe. But we Christians believe in the virgin birth of our Savior. Choose your scandal. Another pastor put it that way. Choose your miracle. For some, this family in the virgin birth is still a scandal, a stumbling block to faith. Yet there's a question for all of us. A question before us. Which is more unbelievable? That salvation would come by such a broken family, by such a fantastic miracle, or that God himself would choose to enter this pain? 
that God himself would associate with our scandal. That the creator would become the creature to suffer with us, for us, to rescue us. That is the scandal. That the transcendent, a holy, perfect God would become imminent, close and accessible to us to the point of becoming a child. Wholly dependent on human beings to feed him, change him, raise him, and ultimately betray and kill him. Friends, our holy God bonded with those he came to save. We won't appreciate the incarnation, the advent of Jesus, if our view of God assumes a cheap, easy, casual connection to him. This was costly. And as we look over this genealogy of Jesus, as we look over the scope of Scripture, we see that a Savior was near and necessary. We see that Jesus was and is the only way to God. The only access we could ever have to God the Father. The darkness of this family could be overwhelming. But the light shined. And the darkness has not, will not, and cannot overcome it. It's our practice um, the weekend after Thanksgiving to go pick a Christmas tree. And so we go to this lot where they have them already pre-cut and lined up, and we let the kids just run around. And you know the experience of going to pick a Christmas tree, right? You see one maybe a few feet away, and you're like, oh, that looks great. You get a little closer, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's going to be a no. You spin it around, and it looks gnarly on one side. Then you take it home, you dress it up as pretty as you can, and you back the bad side into the corner. Friends, isn't that what we do with our own family, our own history, our own sin, our own pain? Dress it up as pretty as we can, and let's just put that side in the corner so that nobody can see it. The beauty of Advent, though, is the opportunity for us to face the darkness and bring light to it. Do you hear me, friends? The beauty of Advent is to face the darkness and let Christ shine light. My friend Tim LaCroix is a pastor who's actually currently chairing a committee for our entire denomination on preventing and responding to abuse within our entire denomination. And he's actually partnered with folks like Rachel Den Hollander, the Michigan State gymnast, and Diane Langberg to study this, to prevent this, to respond well to this, to care for our body well. This is what Tim says about Advent. Watch and pray. This is the theme of Advent. Advent is not preparation or prelude for the babe born on Christmas morn. Advent is a watchful expectation for the king to return and dispel darkness and usher in his kingdom of light. We inhabit the darkness, we watch and pray in the darkness, and we know that after the darkness, the light will come. Many of us have had much to mourn this year. Many have experienced pain and loss. Many suffer under the weight of depression and anxiety. Many endure profound sadness due to unrealized dreams and unanswered prayers. Many have seen the lives of loved ones shattered by oppression and violence. We should mourn these things. 
Part of mourning is leaning into the reality of death and brokenness of this world we live in, that things are not the way they are supposed to be. Advent is a season to cry out to God to come and deliver us from our pain, our sadness, from sin. The prayer of Advent is, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Friends, our Savior was willing to pass through this sin-soaked situation for our salvation. He was willing to come here from the glory of heaven to the incarnation, to the cross, and to an empty tomb for his own family, for his relatives. So when we pray, come Lord Jesus, we are recognizing that for every Advent, there is an Easter. Are you with me? For every Advent, there is an Easter. One comes after the other. And we, when we pray, come Lord Jesus, we are keeping that in view. With that in mind, let's turn from Jesus entering the pain of this family to how Jesus keeps his promises to this family. Like I said, verses 1 and 18 are where we see this. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Like we mentioned, this is a shortened genealogy. That's a genealogy in and of itself. Son of David, son of Abraham, son of David, Jesus. These two names represent the whole family. They're like the representative characters. But it's not because of the men themselves that they are the heading, the context of this whole genealogy. It's the covenants that God made with them. The covenant promises that God made with Abraham and made with David. When Israel read this, their minds would immediately jump to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham, and the covenant promises that God made with him. When they saw the name David, their name, they would immediately jump to 2 Samuel chapter 7, the covenant that God made with David. What were those promises? He went to Abraham and said, a whole family will come from you. Nations, king to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, kings will come from you. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. David, what was God's promise to David? David came to God and said, God, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. Not a building, a house, a kingdom. Someone from David's family would always be on the throne. And that kingdom would never end. He would rule and reign forever. These covenants shape all of Scripture. It's like God hangs promises on these two hooks over and over and over again. Remember Abraham. Remember David. And the message over and over again in these promises is what we call the Emmanuel principle, right? I say this a lot, but bear with me. I will be your God. You will be my people, and I will dwell with you. I will be your God. You will be my people, and I will dwell with you. I will live with you. Matthew actually organizes his entire book around this principle. Just a few verses later, in 123, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The middle of the book, Matthew 18, 20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And the final verse of the book, when Jesus is ascending to heaven, And behold, I am with you 
always, even to the very end of the age. The structure and purpose of the entire book is Matthew communicating to Israel, Jesus is God with us. For us, as it relates to our painful family history, the sin and the shame, friends, this means God will be with you in this, to be your God through this, that you would be his own on the other side of this. Let me say that again. What we know from this is that God will be with us in this to be our God through this, that we would be his own and belong to him on the other side of this. God with us. But how does he keep these two promises? How can he transform a family like this by grafting himself to it? By grafting himself to it. In another life, I studied biology. Botany was not my favorite class, but there were a few things that stuck. Grafting is the process of removing the outer layer or the bark from one plant and taking a branch from an entirely different tree and bonding it to the wound that you'd caused on that original stalk, original branch. You're binding one tree to another tree. And there are all kinds of reasons that you would do this, but one would be to create a new type of growth entirely, some type of hybrid growth. But another would be to save a damaged or dying plant. Opening a wound on the healthy plant and bonding it to it as tightly as you can. And eventually they start to grow together. Friends, there is some comfort in the fact that this family is so sinful. And it's tempting for us to oversimplify this and say something like, well, if God can use a sinner like David, then surely he can use me. And, and yes, there is truth to that. And there is some comfort in that. But that's not good news. That's not good news. The good news is not that God has sinful people in his family. The good news is that Jesus grafted himself to you while you were still a sinner to show you grace. Jesus chose to graft himself to this sick tree to bring it health, to save it. A wound was exposed on the shoot of Jesse to make room for you to be grafted in. <laughs> Friends, that's Christmas. That's Advent that the cross was coming. The result is life and salvation for that damaged plant. Consider what Jeremiah said in chapter 33. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Yes, from David, but for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The branch was grafted onto our sickly tree and it becomes the tree's very source of life. And friends, you must be grafted in. You must be grafted in. Where you were once dead, you must be broken and bound through the life and death promise of a covenant to the true vine. Right? You remember John 15? Where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And this is the scandal. 
As we read this list, those who we thought would belong do not, and those who should have never belonged do. This is what Paul shows us in Romans chapter 11. How in the world can these Gentiles be receiving the grace of God and Israel is rejecting it? This is the scandal that the people that don't belong are being grafted in. That they are now part of this family tree and being saved. Friends, have you been grafted into this grace? Grafted into this health? Grafted into this peace? It's sad to see that not all those who are in this outward family tree believed. Many in this, in this list did not call upon the Lord for salvation. Outward connection to the family does not mean inward salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Have you been grafted in? Today the grace of Jesus is extended to anyone who comes to the true vine for life. Anyone. Look with me at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Like Bill mentioned, on this side of Advent, we're actually celebrating Christmas. That was the waiting and the longing and darkness, and now we have joy. Now the Savior has come. Why? Why can we rejoice on this side of the darkness? Because the Holy Spirit stepped into a family, steps into your family to bring good news, great joy, and peace. And in doing so, he creates a new family, branches from all over bound together to the vine and living as one. But how can we refamily one another here in the body of Christ? How is that possible? How can we pursue joy and peace? I believe in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul gives us a model where he talks about us coming to one another gentle, like a nursing mother would to their child, challenging one another and walking side by side with one another like brothers and sisters, and encouraging and urging one another like fathers to their children. This is the kind of home we hope to have in the body of Christ, isn't it? To bring new hope and life back to our own stories, our own families, our homes. In May 2018, my daddy died unexpectedly at the age of 59. I, I make myself say my daddy died because I tend to try and say my father passed away and that actually distances me from it. It was two weeks before, after we welcomed our youngest daughter into our family. And we went to the funeral, and then on our way out of town, um, I brought our family back by the house that I grew up in. My, a few years before, my parents had moved across town. So we pull up into the driveway. I reach over, I grab, squeeze Kristen's hand, and I step out onto the driveway and just immediately start sobbing. I was grieving really, really hard. But behind that grief was a strong melody of thankfulness. It was not a perfect home, but what I did have there, I was shown the grace of Jesus there. I was shown the grace of Jesus there. 
And as I'm walking around the driveway, I'm really glad nobody was home because I can imagine somebody looking, uh, one of the kids sitting at the dinner table looking out and say, hey mom, why is there a weepy bald man in our driveway? <laughs> but while I'm walking around, I notice something. The family trees had grown. The magnolia and the fig, they'd grown. And a new family was enjoying them. I don't know who lives there, but there were tricycles and stuff in the yard. There were kids enjoying that. What I had waited and hoped for and longed for expectantly, they were enjoying it. This is the story of Abraham's family in, Gen in Matthew chapter 1. Redeemer, I hope for new life in your family as Jesus enters the pain and keeps his promises and that you would be refamilied, creating a new normal at home and even within this family of God and that this church house truly would become home. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as Israel prayed, come Lord Jesus in the darkness, you answered and you brought light, and we are so thankful. I pray that we would live in the light this new year. For those here who feel deep darkness, I pray that you would be with them in it and that you would restore to them the joy of your salvation. Father, when the angels came to the shepherds, you said, do not fear. You come with good news and great joy. So, Father, we've wept, and now you wipe away our tears, and we are ready to rejoice. Thank you for good news. Thank you for being with us. We love you, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.